A lesson in oversimplification. Ready? There are two types of people in the world. I love this, actually. I love that. I love the jokes around this are so funny. There's two types of people. There's the people who use statistics to lie and the 70% of people who don't, right? I mean, that's one joke. It's, it's, I don't know if I told it correctly, but I'm trying my hardest. There are two types of people in the world that we should be concerned about, at least for today's podcast. And that's the people who see the world as glass half empty and the people who see the world as glass half full. And uh, that is the basis for today's discussion. So let's see what happens. everybody welcome to the pre-accident podcast i'm todd conklin your hostess with the mostess so or the host with the most maybe i don't know everything's kind of fluid right now anyway how are you i'm so glad you're here welcome to 2020 the new year although uh it's been going on a while i have been on vacation and busy and doing all sorts of stuff but now we're hard at it we're we're deep in it i just actually spoke at the big mechanical contractors conference in san antonio weirdly it was raining in san antonio but it was so fun to get to see that gang of people that i had not seen it i probably the last time i I was with those guys is probably gosh i bet it was like almost 10 years ago and uh, and how things are changed and how they're so much more ready to hear about what we're talking about and the stuff that's happening it was really fun so it's a good time indeed and my life is grand to say the least so I have a new story for you. This is, um, I don't know if this one's ever happened to you or not, but recently I checked into a hotel kind of late. I got in kind of late because uh, the plane was delayed or something. And, uh, and the desk clerk, super nice kid, I mean, no problem at all, said to me, um, sir, we, uh, due to recent activity, we are in an oversold situation. We have a conference room that we can bring a rollaway in and that's where we're going to put you tonight. And I said, what did you just say? And he said, we have a conference room, but we can put in a rollaway. And uh, I said, a conference room? So, uh, first of all, no, that's not going to work. Um, and secondly, a conference room? You're going to put me in a conference room? And he said, uh, yeah, it has a bathroom and a shower, but uh, it's definitely not a regular room. And the more we discussed it, 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 it became obvious that it, it was uh, it was really uh, one of those rooms that's connected to the fancy pants suite in a hotel with the little door. And this one didn't have a bed in it. It had a it had a basically like a dining room table. I I mean I didn't see it. He explained it to me. I did not accept it. But it had a table in it, and uh, and and then a regular bathroom. Um, it was the first time I'd ever been offered a conference room with a rollaway bed. Um, so, but, but I said, I, you know, I just don't think that's going to work. And, uh, he said, well, let me talk to my manager. And he came back out two minutes later and he said, uh, my manager, actually, we're going to put you in one of our suites tonight. And I said, oh, that's great. Thank you. I said, that worked out really well. And he said, I'm, I'm sorry. They, they put me in between them and the customer. And he said, and it's just really hard because I know it's always going to disappoint people. And I said, I appreciate that. I said, you handled it really well. I said, the one thing I 
I probably would not do just as a piece of advice. And if you want me to talk to your boss, I'll talk to him, but I probably wouldn't put people in a conference room with a rollaway bed because pretty much nothing about that sounds interesting. It's like I spoke at a, at a meeting the other day and they had one of those microphones that, that like Madonna wears that you wear around your head. And they wanted me to wear that and they're terrible. They drive you crazy. But the, the, the guy who was in charge of the audio visual, he said, uh, he said, well, we'll make it okay. He said, we'll tape it to your face. Well, anything that starts with, we'll tape it to your face as a rule, I would say I probably wouldn't do that. That, that seems like something you kind of want to skip over and not do. That's just my rule. But that is um, kind of the starting place for the year for me. Those are my first two um, big stories of the year. <laughs> the conference room with the rollaway bed, which clearly if you say no to, they'll put you in a suite. So, I mean, here's the lesson for us. Just say no to stuff and, 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 and be nice. Don't be mean. Uh, and they'll hook you up. And secondly, don't tape crap to your face. Those are the things I'm thinking of as I'm thinking of things today. I'm pretty excited, though. I mean, 2020, I think, portends to be a, a big year. Um, at least I'm hopeful. And I think that's the way to be. I think we have to be hopeful. Hopeful seems to be, hopeful seems to be a better position to be in than not hopeful. In fact, that's, that's kind of what we're going to talk about today in, in, in today's podcast is is the fact that that this notion that we get better, deliberate improvement, that's really a powerful, powerful thing. It's powerful for your organization, but it's also a really powerful frame by which um, you guys can think about and managing the work and programs that you do. And that's, that's relatively important. Right now, I, we ought to probably have the conversation. It's five o'clock in the morning here. I'm so jet lagged from coming back from my vacation that I have absolutely no idea what time it is, but I'm relatively certain I shouldn't be up this early. I mean, I've been up since two. Um, it's, it's, it's like midday for me. So, which I, I'm never, I'm not that. So let's get into the podcast and talk about this because I've got lots of stuff to tell you and uh, I won't get it done if I don't do it. So here we go. Let's talk today about uh, the choices you make around deliberate improvement. And I'm going to talk about it using a very special frame, a frame that I think you'll like very much. So we'll get into it. Here we go. Hey, everybody. Okay, we're going to talk today about a guy named David Cooper Ryder. David Cooper Ryder. And if you want to look him up, he's, he's at Case Western University. David Cooper Ryder. And he started, oh, man, I should have looked this up a little better. I'm going entirely on memory, but that's all right. Probably, I would guess, 20 years, maybe a little farther away from that. He started thinking about the way groups problem solve in organizations. And he came up with an idea that he tried, and it was incredibly interesting in its success. Now, it didn't do amazingly successful things. Don't get me wrong. It's not like the magic bullet, the, the, the panacea for all problem solving. But what it did was kind of speed up a process of how groups come together and create outcomes. The old storming, norming, forming, and performing 
You, you remember those. That's, that's kind of how groups get together. And what we do as people who care about reliability, for the most part, is facilitate organizations in being reliable. And so David Cooperwriter, he came together and created something called Appreciative Inquiry. And I'm going to talk to you about that today. I have used Appreciative Inquiry for a really, really long time. And I was lucky because I got to use it in the, in the trenches, in the field. I got to use it uh, all over my old employer, um, you know, a, a major national laboratory nestled in northern New Mexico. And I got to try it out really with groups of highly skilled, brilliant technical people who were experts at doing the work they did. I didn't know at the time that it would be as helpful because I didn't know at the time it would make such a difference. I realize now in retrospect, especially after, you know, reading through lots of very Carl Nagel stuff and, and David Woods and Sidney Decker and, 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 and thinking about these problems a lot myself, I realize now that the way we solve problems is a deliberate strategy. And that's what's so important about the idea of appreciative inquiry. In fact, many places you'll hear them talk about appreciative investigations, and, and they're basically using these ideas from David Cooperwriter. Now, before we go much further, one of the things you ought to do is when you get to the office, Google really quickly this this book, The Thin Book of Appreciative Inquiry. It's It's, I don't even think it's 50 pages long. It's a super, super slick read. It's easy as pie. And it will give you everything you need to know to be an expert in actually using appreciative inquiry. But let, let me give you my background on how appreciative inquiry works. And I think one of the ways to do that is let's pretend for a moment that we're in a meeting. And that I've come in to help facilitate the meeting. You asked me to come. I didn't just attack. Well, maybe I I was walking by and you had really good donuts and I came in. And then since I was there, you asked me to facilitate the meeting. This is how I would start an appreciative inquiry. What I would say is we're about to actually do some data collection. And the way we're going to do this data collection is probably slightly different than the way you've traditionally done data collection throughout your career. And so let me explain how it differs, which will sort of serve as the way to explain the method we're going to use to collect this information, because we're going to do some analysis. And here's what's going to happen. Traditionally, if we were going to solve problems, traditionally what we do is probably do some kind of gap analysis. And so here's what that looks like. I would come in and facilitate you guys, and I would start the day by saying, okay, what sucks? And dutifully, we would start to fill flip charts, pages and pages and pages and pages of flip charts. And we would talk about what sucks, what's bad, what's wrong, what doesn't work, where's conflict, where is it uncomfortable, what sucks. And pretty soon, we'd have a gigantic list. In fact, we'd probably have to limit ourselves by actually shutting down the data collection process and saying, well, that's a lot. We got a lot. We got probably nine pages posted up on the wall of this conference room. 
why don't we stop there? That's a good understanding of current state. And then I would say, let's take a break because we need a break because we'd all be a little bit depressed because we just spent an hour and a half talking about what's terrible, what sucks. And I would say, let's make the break 10 minutes long and you'd nod and then you'd take break and you'd come back like 35 minutes later. And part of that is just because we just spent a lot of time having a really pretty taxing conversation about the current state of our organization and where its weaknesses and soft spots and problem areas existed. And then I would say, now that break is over, let's talk about what we want to be. Let's talk about the future state. Let's talk about the perfect world. Let's vision out on these flip chart pages what good looks like, what the solution is. And then we'd get together and we'd talk dutifully and we'd be serious about it. And we would actually put down on a sheet of paper what the perfect answer to our problem is. We'd be open for discussion. We'd probably have a little give and take. We'd actually come up with a relatively good answer. And then we would say these words. Okay, here's where we are, these nine pages of what sucks. And here's where we want to go. These two pages of our vision for the path forward, our solution set. How do we get from the bad pages to the good pages? And that is the gap. Hence the term gap analysis. They don't just make this crap up, you guys. That's where it comes from. And then we would start the whole rest of the time somehow visioning our way, creating a roadmap, creating a journey, creating a plan. You've done this your whole career. You know exactly what I'm talking about. We would fill in that gap. And that's, that's, a, that's a pretty standard way to solve problems. I mean, we've been doing that a long, long time in organizations. That's not new. It's not even novel. But I would suggest that one of the issues with it is that it starts from about the most negative place you can be. It starts from a problem. And it really does sort of start by saying, let's emphasize, list, understand, and analyze what's bad, what sucks. And then, starting from that problem, the group must create the solution. And that's where David Cooper Ryder came in and said, I think the problem is in the format, not in the people. It's in the context, not in the workers. It's in the method we're using, not in the human beings that are doing the work. And he said, what would happen if we just started with what good looks like and just throw away, completely throw away that whole first two hours of the meeting where you dutifully talk about what sucks. Now, this is interesting, you guys, because what Cooper Ryder is saying is that you don't do the traditional problem definition. You don't really focus on what's bad. You start by thinking about what's good. What do you think about that? I mean, that's really interesting because that 
is a very, very different way to solve problems. And that's what Cooper Ryder, that's what he did. He went out into the world. Now, he mostly was looking at social issues, but he was looking at community groups, and he was looking at community groups. He started in the Midwest, but uh, he definitely got some legs on this very quickly, and he created a lot of little accolades that um, that, that practiced this in the field, of, of, of which I was one. I mean, I, I thought, why not try this? And what's interesting is you would think, especially with the group I'm working with, highly the same, same people you work with, highly technical, really smart people, you would think that this would be a little too squishy, a little too woolly. But what I found is with highly technical groups, appreciative inquiry is an incredibly valuable tool, and it's so much faster. It is, it is so much faster than traditional problem solving with groups of people. And so what Cooper Ryder did, and this was developed over time, and the reason I, I, I pointed you to that book, The Thin Book of Appreciative Inquiry, is it'll really help you understand that, that the power of appreciative inquiry is in creating a set of questions that start from the appreciative core. So Cooper Ryder's premise is the same premise that we have. And that is people are much more successful than they are failing. That they spend much more time adaptively creating success in complexity and doing it very well than they do actually having problems, screwing up or having accidents. So we know that's true because we watch our workers all the time interface with really, really complex systems and get better, right? Cooper Ryder said, if that's true, then what we ought to do is create a set of questions. And he came up with kind of four questions. Um, and maybe it's better to call them question categories, but four questions that you ask when you do these appreciative inquiries. So here's what I do when I do that. I break the group up into teams of two. They call that dyads, if you want to use the fancy language for that. And then I give them a little questionnaire. And the question is really pretty simple. The first question is really accessing the past success that the workers have had in solving similar problems to the one we're trying to solve today. So if you're going to go in and solve a problem around budget, right, or around resources, around all the kind of crap that we solve all the time, the first question I would ask would sound something like this. Tell your partner the story of a time when you solved a problem and it was especially effective. It worked. Everybody liked it. It was sustainable and successful. It made a huge difference. It was effective. And then on that same question, say, describe what made it effective. How did people talk to each other? How did they interface with each other? What did leadership for this look like? What made this different? What made this successful? And then you can put any other question you want to in that first question. But what you're doing is you're saying, tell us about a time when you were successful that you remember, it's noteworthy, that's similar to the problem we're trying to solve, and then tell us in detail why it was successful. And one of the secrets is, is when you break people up into pairs, into dyads like this, 
you have one person telling the story and another person listening to the story. And that, for adults, is an incredibly effective way to gather information. I mean, so people like to tell stories, and the listener can really take down notes from kind of an objective second party and get a pretty good understanding, actually a really good understanding, of what the key components of that question should be. And before long, both people have told stories of their past successes. Both people have listened to stories of the other person's past success, and they've both taken notes on what characteristics need to be present in order for this to be effective. And what you end up with is a relatively incredibly, incredibly rich list of contextual components that need to be present in order for this problem to be solved. What's amazing about that is that's actually a pretty easy place to start. Because if you say, okay, communication was clear, we met every morning at 7 a.m., we never missed a meeting, we closed every day at 5.30 with a, a boots-off toolbox talk, right, whatever they said, that's pretty easy to build into the system, and you collect a lot of data almost immediately. Now, the next question that Cooper Ryder talks about really talks about what the people bring to the group. So, so one of the things I usually say on question two, and there's only going to be really three or four of these questions. The second question I ask, the second question set I ask on this sheet of paper. So I would have typed this up and given them a little sheet of paper. It, it would start something like this without being humble. Tell your partner what you bring to the table. What is it about you that is especially important that makes a huge difference. And um, as awkward as that question is, and it's pretty awkward and people tend to really self edit that. So that whole without being humble thing is important, but doesn't make much difference. Pretty soon what happens is you've got a pretty good understanding of what the group feels is valuable. So what they tell you they're good at is what they care about. So I'm really good. So I'm make this up. I'm really good at organizing things. And so what, what I bring to groups is a really strong sense of organization. If you know me, that's a huge lie, but let's go with it. Right now. Now, you know that I'm good at organizing because I've told you I'm good at organizing. But what you've also learned is it's important for me to have organization. And so once you identify this, especially when you do this, do this with senior leader teams, you'll have a pretty good understanding of what the, what the core values of the individual people in the group are. And then that helps you actually build some metrics, some ho-ho checks, some, uh, some benchmarks into the system that allow you to identify these characteristics, organization, communication, whatever they learn. You're starting to repeat the information that you gathered from question one and question two, only question two helps you refine it. That question's pretty simple. Don't overthink it. Just ask them what they bring to the table and what they're proud of, what they're good at, and have them list it and just have them tell their partner. Their partner writes them down, vice versa, you're done. Question three will sound similar, but it's not as similar. Question three then looks at the core value of the organization. And the question I usually ask for question three, and I've asked this for years, it'd be interesting to see if these have changed because I have not changed them because they've worked so well. Question three usually starts like this. What is it that gives this organization life? 
or this group life or this team life or this company life or this plant life or this mill life. It, what is it that gives this group life? And, uh, and ask them to explain and defend what that is. And what you'll find is in a split second, I mean, in a matter of minutes, you will identify the core organizational values of that team or organization or site that you're working with. That question is worth a million dollars. You'll be stunned at the data you get from this, which will be really, really helpful. And then the last question. I usually use these four questions or, or some semblance of these four questions. And remember, writing the question matters. So it's the art of creating the question that actually creates the good outcome. It gives you good data. The fourth, que- fourth question I ask is, um, it's pretty simple. It's almost like a gear change question. So the appreciative inquiry questions one, two, and three have all looked backwards into the appreciative core of the group, into what's been successful in the past for them. Question four shifts gears into forward. And what I say is, what are the next three things we should do in order to begin solving the problem or improving the system or reducing the number of events or what, you know, whatever, whatever your outcome is, please put them in order and help us understand why these three are significant. And what happens is pretty soon you'll have a very thoughtful and highly prioritized list of actions that you can actually list together collectively for that group that tells you a really, really good starting place. That's pretty much an appreciative inquiry. So you write these questions on a sheet of paper, those four question sets. You give them to the pairs and give them some time and some space to talk to each other. They don't need a lot of time or a lot of space. I would suggest a half hour, 15 minutes for each side, or maybe 40 minutes, 20 minutes for each side, depending on sort of how deep they get into it. But you'll have a tremendous amount of information pretty much collected in 40 minutes. And then once they've answered each other's question, bring the group back together and put it up on the flip chart, right? You'll have four distinct flip charts. You'll have the first one, which is um, the, the things we need to be successful, success factors. So that's from question one. Tell me a time when you were really successful, what existed, what made it successful. The second flip chart sheet of paper will be individual values and you'll just you'll just list what people say the third sheet of flip chart paper will be the organizational values or the core values of the group and then the fourth sheet of flip chart paper maybe multiple sheets of flip chart paper that will be the path forward and in about an hour and a half you will have done what would take me traditionally two days to do with the group, you will successfully have gathered that data in about an hour and a half. That's the power of starting from appreciative inquiry, looking at what normal is and asking them why normal is successful. That really is an important thing for us to think about. That is David Cooper Ryder's idea of appreciative inquiry. And that's the story that I wanted to share with you today.
Because I think that tool for 2020, for the new decade, may be one of the most valuable tools we can possibly use. What do you think? Pretty good? I think so. That pretty much solves the Earth's great mysteries for today. And therefore, it should probably be the end of the Pre-Accident Podcast for this week's incredible uh, supplement. Sorry I didn't have anybody on. I got, a lot of, I got a lot of stuff out there, but I really felt the urge to get this appreciative inquiry thing out early in January just because I've been wanting to talk about this a while with you guys, and I've sort of teased it before. In fact, we've talked about it, oh, I don't know. You know, you know we're into our sixth year of these podcasts, so there's kind of a bunch to choose from. So we talked about this probably, I don't know, five years ago. But I wanted to bring that back up, and then I wanted to tease out that 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 thin book of appreciative inquiry because I think it's really helpful. I think it makes a huge difference, and it's fun. Plus, I think you should try this. It's it's just a different way to solve problems, and it works beautifully. I mean, it works brilliantly with workers. It's it's really effective, but it works beautifully with senior leaders and with with technical people. I mean, it's just a really good way to gather data. It's it's fast. And people understand how fast it is. They see it really quickly, and that makes a difference. So that's it. That's our challenge. Stick around. There's really great stuff. Please tell your friends to listen to the podcast. It makes such a difference. Now there's so many podcasts to listen to. Holy crap, how are you guys doing it? How do you how do you stay sane in this world? Thanks for listening, though. Makes a difference to me. Until then, my friends, uh, uh, you know what? Have a great time. Learn something new every single day. Have as much fun as you possibly can. And for goodness sakes, you guys, be safe.